Welcome to Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics, where the conversation always gives you a foundation that is built on biblical principles, so you can intellectually and critically learn to weigh out decisions about life with truth, facts, contradictions, and the reality we live in, and history. Host Joe Gaona covers topics like apologetics, worldviews, contemporary culture, and the Word of God to help you articulate a defense for how you live your Christian life. See how you can get involved in support Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics by visiting ThroughoutAllAgesMinistries.com That's ThroughoutAllAgesMinistries.com Joe, where is that magnifying glass? How you doing today? This is Joe with 1530 Apologetics Throughout All Ages And we're here to talk about apologetics and see where you stand on your worldview and to give you reasons and answers for why we believe Christianity, above all other worldviews, can have a justifiable answer for what we believe in. Now, we have been talking for the last couple of weeks about three camps, three categories in a Christian's worldview that he would need to know uh, evidentialist style, that how you can bring archaeology, prophecy, and um, and miracles into the topic to when you're discussing with someone. And then we got the classic argument, the classical argument points to theism, points to a God, that there must be a God, and from there we can get to the Christian God. And then the presupposition that as I stand on that worldview, that there is a God, that everything we do in life, every truth, every order, every consistency that's out there, every absolute comes from the nature of God, and so we will be discussing that But today, we are talking about the evidentialists and the importance of a justifiable answer to the Christian worldview. Now, as I said, we've talked about archaeology and prophecy. Today, our conversation will be miracles. Now, there was someone who quoted, Give enough time, anything is possible. I believe it was a quote from Dawkins, and I remember thinking that this is a fantastic quote. Is he saying, give it enough time and nothingness would create a universe? If you exclude energy, I would say that that is laughable and really irrational when we're talking about nothingness. Do we really mean nothing by definition when we're talking about nothingness? And now I would call the creation of the universe not just an incredible event, as Hume would say. You see, Hume, when we talk about the philosopher of the 1700s, Hume made this reference to an incredible event and the difference between that and a miracle. And he goes on to say an incredible event can be compared to a great darkness that comes over the whole face of the earth for a period of so many days versus something that cannot be explained as a miracle. A miracle would be one walking on the water, making wine from water, or rising from the dead. 
So up front, I, I want to say that the Big Bang was and is a massive miracle. I understand that he never brought that up, but let's think about this. When we think about the universe and how it came into existence, we all know that this was huge, that it wasn't just an incredible event, but this was a miracle in itself. If this world we live in called Earth is random chance and chaos, like we are told by the scientists, by the atheist, by the skeptic, um, and the empiricist informs us, then the only, then not only was the Big Bang a massive miracle, but each day is a massive miracle. Uh, the scientist has no validation why the natural laws are consistent every day. So they say this, so given enough time, a universe can be created from nothing. Well, then it must follow. We can expect miracles. Given enough time, life can come from non-life. That must follow. Then we can expect miracles. So given enough time, chemical evolution brings biological evolution. It follows we can expect miracles. So when they say given enough time, anything is possible, do you agree with that? Do you agree with Hawkins as he as, as Dawkins would say that given enough time, anything is possible? This to me is no doubt a non sequitur. Then the atheist would have to say given enough time and God can exist. But they wouldn't give you that. So our topic today is an evidentialist argument for miracles. Bottom line, the Big Bang was a miracle. And if the Big Bang was a miracle, then miracles do exist. The question is, how many events could happen before it is no longer a miracle to have a miracle? So when we talk about miracles, it does not rest on itself to say miracles happen. And so I must believe everybody who says they saw a miracle or that there was a miracle. But just like anything else, you have principles, a framework to see if these things are true. If miracles are true, it should be able to stand against scrutiny from anybody from any corner of this world. You see, on a Christian worldview, our justifiable, our justifiable answer is to have this maximum supreme being who created what nothing else could create, a.k.a. this universe, that Christian God must be consistent, a universe that is governed by him, that he made personal creatures with a will and a personality, and a God like this would justify miracles in a natural world. And all the other other religions that we have out there, all the other worldviews, we don't have the consistency written down on manuscript of who their God is or who might cause all these things to happen on this universe. But the Bible is formative as it gives us answer after answer about this God and his nature and character. Miracles in the Bible were not something that happened every day at every corner. As a matter of fact, we are told in Scripture that a time is going to come, 
This was in the primitive Old Testament, B.C., that when the Messiah Jesus, the Son of God, and he would do what no other did. Now, although we have miracles in the Old Testament, they were extremely far apart. And then when Jesus came and walked as a historical figure, there were things that would have to show that this is the Messiah, that this is the Jesus. And so Isaiah 42 tells us this, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth that comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, talking about Jesus, the Son of God, and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to all people, as a light to the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles was everyone else who wasn't an Israelite. Everyone else who wasn't a Jew was called a Gentile. So Jesus was come, was come came into this world to be a light to the Gentiles. And what he, what he would do is on the seventh verse, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prisons, those who sit in darkness from the prison house, to give them new light, that he would come and do these miracles in Luke seven twenty two, it says. Then Jesus answering said to them, "Go your way, as as John the Baptist's disciples wanted to know if he was the Messiah, if he was this one." He pointed not just to himself, but he pointed to the miraculous. He pointed to what they actually could see. And in Luke seven twenty, it says, Jesus answered those disciples. He said, go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. So it wasn't something that just he told them. They actually seen and heard how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor the, to the poor, the gospel is preached. And then we have this Pharisee naming Nicodemus, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And, and this is what he says. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs, these miracles that, that you do unless God is with him. You see, the Christian understands that unless God created this universe and mankind, that miracles would not be possible. I want to talk a little bit as we get into uh, the subject of miracles about David Hume. So Dave Hume was born in the 1700s, and here's was Hume's construct. One, the first proposition A miracle is, by definition, a rare occurrence. We agree with that, right? Second second proposition, natural law is, by definition, a description of regular occurrences. I agree with that. Now, it's when we get to his third proposition that I begin to lose me. On his third proposition, the evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare. He says, we know more about regular occurrences, so we should believe regular events are greater than their rare events. And we come back in the second half with 1530 apologetics, and we talk about miracles. We're going to talk about these rare 
evidences that take place compared to miracles. This is Joe with 1530 Apologetics. Don't go away because there is much more to come with Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics on K-Praise. Throughout All Ages Ministry 1530 Apologetics goes into the public high school to build up the student's character to intellectually think about their worldview and weigh it with truth. Studies show 75 to 85 percent of all college students who grew up in a Christian home are walking away from their faith. For more information about 1530 Apologetics, go to throughoutallages.com. Join Creation Fellowship's and T's Apologetics Speaker Series Thursdays at 6.30 p.m. via Zoom. 1 Peter verse 3 chapter 15 says, To always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. Creation Fellowship's and T's brand name Apologetics Speakers will do just that. Equip you with the knowledge and tactics to explain your Christian faith. Get equipped Thursday nights at 6.30. Learn more on Facebook and YouTube at Creation Fellowship's and or email creationfellowshipsantee at gmail.com. Welcome back to Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics. And now, here's your host, Joe Gaona, on K-Praise. Here we are on the second half, talking about miracles as part of the evidentialist cumulative argument. And we begin to talk about Hume's construct. His first proposition is a miracle is by definition a rare occurrence. And his second one is natural law is by definition a description of regular occurrences. And then we get into the third uh, proposition. He says this, the evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare. So he's saying we know more about regular occurrences. Our senses see that. We hear, touch, and feel, and smell. And so he goes on to say on this third proposition that we know more about regular occurrences, so we should believe regular occurrences events are greater than rare events. Then he concludes the proposition by saying this on number four. A wise man always bases his belief on the greater evidence. Therefore, a wise man should never believe in a miracle. Now, Hume puts this out here, but I think he forgets a a few things. Why should a wise man not believe in miracles? Well, Hume concludes because natural, regular occurrences happen more frequently, so as a wise man should not believe in In miracles, let me be clear about events. In each situation, whether it's a natural event, an incredible event, or a miracle, each occurrence alone must be weighed out on facts, inference, and evidence. Hume's right out says because natural occurrences are greater, his conclusion are miracles, rare events, do not happen. Hume's proposition begins to beg the question on Proposition 3. This is the de facto why. It says the evidence for regular is always greater than that for the rare. So let's talk about this. If the universe came into existence, this is by definition a rare event. A miracle, as I said from the beginning. When we talk about the spontaneous generation of life, 
It's so rare. We have never seen it happen. We just know it happened. We can look around and see that it happened. There is no observation. There is no testing to show it can happen. And it's never been repeated in a lab. Yes, this is a rare event. And Hume definitely overreached his reaction about miracles. There was this atheist named John Ehrman. He called Hume's argument an abject failure. Why? Because the analogy he gives when, he, when John Ehrman uh, talks about these uh, regular occurrences compared to rare occurrences, John Ehrman says this. He says, you have an Indian prince who has never seen ice, and then someone reports to him that they have seen ice. But because the Indian prince has never seen ice as a regular occurrence, he rejects this report based on the evidence on a regular occurrence. So Hume suggests if regular occurrences in life have never seen ice, a wise man should never believe in ice. But that's not true. And we see this all the time. When we look at human experience, it does not show miracles do not happen But on the contrary, it actually shows that miracles can happen. Think about this. Statistically, 50% of all doctors have seen a miracle in their field. 1% of the population. Let's just think of the population today, 7 billion people. 1% of the population in their lifetime believes something miraculous or spiritual experience has happened. We do have reports, books written up of miracles that happened throughout the world. Now, I like what C.S. Lewis said in his book, Miracles, as he made reference to Hume. And this is what he said. He said, of course, we must agree with Hume that if there is absolutely uniform experience against miracles, if in other words, they have never happened, Why then they never have happened? Or he says, why then they never have? Unfortunately, we know the experience against them to be uniform only if we know that all reports of them are false. So on C.S. Lewis' Miracles on page one or two, what what C.S. Lewis is saying, that if your proposition, if your presupposition from the get-go is that we will not believe in miracles because in regular occurrences, they don't happen, that even if there is a miracle, I will not believe. And that's kind of circular. That's right off the bat. That's begging the question to say that regular occurrences isn't a miracle. We know a miracle is something rare. I like what C.S. Lewis says, C.S. Lewis says, as he goes on to say, now think about this. I go into my motel room and I put $100 in the drawer. I come back the next day, I put $200 in there. And I come back the third day and I put another $100 in there. On my fourth day, as my day concludes, I go into my room and I look into that drawer and I only see $300. Would I conclude that the laws of mathematics changed? Would I figure then, oh man, that the laws of mathematics must have changed overnight because my money count is different. No, we would understand that what changed is a thief came in and stole the money. The money is still the money is still counted to be four hundred dollars, 
But at Thieves, something superseded that. And there is this notion uh, of our understanding of the world that says that such things should not happen uh, when we're talking about miracles. But nothing has been broken or suspended, suspended when we're talking about miracles and the natural laws. The normal operation of the laws of nature have just been superseded by the act of the creator who made them. Now, there is so much science that we cannot comprehend, especially when we're talking about particles, quantum physics, the cosmological constants and how they're constant. But there is no reason for the very God that created and sustained the world can superside, supersede all that he has made. Again, let me uh, reiterate, we know rare miracles do happen. So how do we know if a miracle is false? The simple answer is we investigate with facts, evidence, and inference. So when we talk about the Christian worldview, we stand our chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ and that he rose from the dead. And if there was no resurrection, then we are the most miserable men. Why? Because if there is no raising from the dead, if there is no resurrection, then our religious attitude, everything we believe in falls to the ground if there is no resurrection. So as we talk about the resurrection and what happened, we look at this story and we say, is there evidence? Are there facts? Is there inference that's pointing to that this are this was a rare occurrence, but it doesn't mean it wasn't true. We've seen this as we talked about life from non-life and the Big Bang and the universe that came from nothing. So when we talk about the resurrection, we need to look at it, and there are things that we look at when we talk about the resurrection. First of all, when we talk about legendary stories, if you're saying that the resurrection was just a legendary story, do you realize that it takes centuries to make accounts of stories become legendary? And yet when we talk about the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we begin to orally talk about it right from day one. And 20 years later, we're already actually uh, 20 years later, we're actually writing about this account on manuscripts and we can go further into that. But if the story is just told to their own so let's say they wanted to make up the resurrection. The way you would do that is you would tell it to your own religious uh, group of people that you have there, those who identify for who you are. And if the story, maybe if the story is told far away, so eight, nine, 10,000 miles away, you tell the story and no one can hear the story being uh, told about it. Well, that's another way that you can get a story out there. But we know that this story, this historical account about the resurrection happened right in the main place of Judea. The other thing is, is like I said, it becomes a cornerstone for what we believe, right? So to proclaim a foundation cornerstone using the very religion that was around for thousands of years, 
your forefathers, your whole family, your ethnicity is defined as a group of people who identified with each other based on a common ancestral, social, culture, and national experience, then in the teeth of the enemy, you're now coming to them and saying this resurrection happened, and they're saying, no, it, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And so you're right in the teeth of it. You didn't go out somewhere and begin to talk about it. Also, we got 1 Corinthians 15 that talks about Jesus raising from the dead. And it goes on to say this, that moreover, brethren, on 1 Corinthians 15 that was written about 50 AD, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received in which you stand. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, that was Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present time, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of the apostles. And he begins to make a matter of fact that there were people living in that time that saw Jesus after he had rose from the tomb. What greater accomplishment we have than the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll talk to you later next week. This is Joe with 1530 Apologetics. That's a take. And this has been Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics. You can learn more about your host, Joe Gaona, how to support and get involved with 1530 Apologetics by visiting throughoutallagesministries.com. That's throughoutallagesministries.com. 1530 Apologetics is vigorously setting the pace to give easy answers to hard questions in the culture we live in. So be sure to join Joe at this same time next week for more biblical principles to help you intellectually and critically learn to weigh out decisions about life with truth, facts, contradictions, the reality we live in, and history. This has been Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics on K-Praise.